Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing podcast. And uh, I just got out of the air, literally just landed in Las Vegas, Nevada uh, for this year's 2020 Shooting Hunting Outdoor Trade Show. And I rushed out of the airport, and then now I'm sitting in Randy Newberg's hotel room. Well, Bob, I'm glad that you're here, but <laughs> Howard showed up before you did, so uh, we we covered most of the important stuff. So, so in closing, yeah, yeah, did yeah. you guys hit record? Yeah, he he swore me to secrecy though, <laughs> and uh, so. Uh, your your words are good with me, Howard. You don't worry about anything. <laughs> and the Howard uh, Randy's referring to making his uh, inaugural on the wing podcast debut, right? I we, guess we we've scheduled it a couple times and rescheduled, but uh, you're going to ride co-host today. Excellent. And, and you being Howard Vincent, president and CEO, since the year 2000. Yes. Right? Yeah. For pheasants forever and quail forever, and for folks that don't know. Only the second president and CEO in the organization's entire history. Yeah. Wow. We're just kind of the we're kind of young <laughs> in the organization <laughs> world, right? In Thirty around thirty-eight years. Yeah. Right now. So yeah. in a future episode, we're going to sit down and get your story, and I'll tease it with uh, when you were coming for your job interview. There, a rooster played an important part in downtown St. Paul on your way to a job interview. But I'm just going to tease it. All right. We're not going to tell that story I'll here. Because we're here to tease National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic with our keynote speaker, Randy Newberg. And here's a bit of trivia that you guys have already started talking about, but our listeners might not know, uh-huh. is you guys have a background in common that I think is super uncommon in the outdoors world. And that's the fact that not only are you both accountants by trade, yeah. you're both two of the most fantastic public speakers in the outdoor world, which to me is completely incongruent <laughs> for a statement. Accountants that are public speakers. You guys have to be anomalies in the accounting world, don't you? I was told that. I thought I was going to get fired one time when one of the I worked for a big national firm and the partner called me in and said, you know, you're not like most people here. <laughs> <laughs> and I wasn't sure what to make of that. So I'm like, well, oh, well, that's what you get when you get a guy from northern Minnesota. You're going to get someone like probably not like the other people. Yeah. Amen. So, so <laughs> from Duluth, Minnesota. Yeah. Counting track uh, in that life where only seven, eight years before I came to Pheasant, before, before I came to Pheasant Forever, but um, I get that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. I bet you do. You're not the prototypical accountant that people have, and right. I think maybe they just have a misguided perception of who we are. Maybe maybe that's the problem. I right? don't think so. I just think you guys are anomalies. <laughs> All right. We're outside. The, but, we're the, we're the outsiders, but, the outliers that flatten no. the bell curve. Think of the similarities, though. You're both from northern Minnesota, Duluth, and uh, I'm Big playing, Falls. Big Falls, Minnesota. Yeah. yeah. So you, you got to understand the geography of Minnesota. My dad said anybody south of Highway 2 was a city slicker. <laughs> so Highway 2 yeah. goes right through Duluth. So <laughs> Howard would be, my dad would really check him out. Right. Like, boy, I don't know about that guy. 
Right. Well, uh, Duluth, a hundred thousand. I mean, that's a yeah. that's a good sized city. So, you ever see the show, uh, The Great Outdoors, with John Candy sure. and and the the guy who owns the resort, the steak that uh, and the grizzled and get a yeah. t shirt. That's yeah, the one. And the guy had the yellow t shirt with black print that said, "I've been to Duluth." <laughs> yeah. That was my dad. Yeah. <laughs> my dad going to Duluth or Bemidji. That was something that made his year. So Howard would be considered part of the cosmopolitan set in my dad's. <laughs> okay, view of there. The world. No one's ever said I was cosmopolitan. <laughs> <laughs> so, where did you get your degree? Uh, Harvard on the truck. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, Nevada, Reno. Reno. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. you and you went to UMD, right? University Howard? of Minnesota Duluth. Okay. Yeah. See, I I wasn't smart. NCAA hockey champions. Yeah. Yeah, see, Two I, years in a row. I took the long route. Yeah, not that anyone's counting, right? I love watching college hockey because I love cheering for the Bulldogs. But uh, I went to the U in Minneapolis my first year. Uh, lived over in uh, Bailey Hall over there on Cleveland Boulevard on the Ag School. Because, I mean, when you grow up in a logging family like I did, you didn't want to live out over on the riverbank there with sure. the, you know, all the other. You so you were by the fairgrounds. Oh, yeah. 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 Because Not in Dinky Town. You were. No, Dinky Town. That's where all, <laughs> well, I can't use those terms on a podcast. But, but <laughs> yeah, up north, they have a description for the types who hang out at Dinky Town. But so then I left there and I went. I It was so my my uh, student aid uh, work study program was I worked on the grounds crew. Well, it, the winter of 1983-84 had to have been the greatest snowfall accumulation St. Paul, Minnesota ever had mm. because I shoveled snow nonstop as part of the grounds crew there. And about March, I still remember I'm out there in front of the dining hall shoveling, and I said, screw this. I am going somewhere warm, and I transferred to Arizona State. Really? Yep. I thought you said you went to Reno. I know. <laughs> I did. So okay, so you got to I got to Arizona and the quail hunting was just too good for a guy like me to ignore. Uh-huh. So after two I transferred to Arizona State, I'm on the dean's list in mechanical engineering and within 2 years I'm on academic probation. <laughs> Priorities. <laughs> yes. The the dove and quail hunting was just too good. I walked right into that joke for you, didn't yeah. I? <laughs> and so I, I tell people, they say, oh, you attended Arizona State? I said, no, I enrolled. Uh-huh. Attendance was not my strong suit because every morning there were quail to be had. So so what? which species of quail? Uh, mostly you? it was just about all gambles. Okay. There in the, in the Phoenix, Wickenburg, Maricopa area. Mm. Uh, I've, I, as, uh, how would I say this? As generic and cheap as a college student's dinners usually are, I had more quail dinners than any student at Arizona State University in the two years I was there. <laughs> Beautiful. I was eating well. Now, yeah. usually quail goes with a fine wine. Mine went mostly with a cheap beer. Yeah. So. so how would you compare growing up chasing rough grouse to going down there and, and hunting gambles quail? Is there any comparison from a shooting and hunting perspective? No. There's not because my dad, he instructed us to shoot those as, so right there, rough grouse. My right. dad would say that dude is south of highway. Yeah. Exactly. They're partridge. Call, yeah, yeah. He calls them grouse. Yeah. Well, and partridge. Yep. I was under strict orders. You shoot them on the ground. You shoot them out of the tree. You don't shoot them on the wing. Howard's got a saying about that. Yeah. we. I call it uh, pre-flight. There's, <laughs> oh, I like that. that yeah. But you're right. I, I grew up. 
if if I equated it to uh, partridge, uh-huh. right? You went partridge hunting yep. in the fall, yeah, yeah, northern Minnesota. Um, if that bird was flying, it was like a Nolan Ryan fastball. It mm. sounded like it went low and away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You never saw it. It just <laughs> sounded like it went low and away. Uh, and I never had a real dog. No, no. If you and had so, if you had a real dog, that was another sign, according to my dad, that you were a city slicker. <laughs> so, you know, he my dad's version of a great dog is the free one he got at the Kmart parking lot in International Falls. <laughs> that, that was a good dog. <laughs> what breed was that? Who knows? Who knows? It had spots and pointy ears, yeah. and it growled a lot. I, yeah. I had a shepherd collie mix. Yeah, so right, deaf, my, dumb, and blind, basically, but yeah. it was a good companion. So yeah. I, I, so from Arizona, then after trying to re-enroll after two years, I, I still remember. I was telling this story the other day to some people who asked the same question. I'm, I go into the admissions office or the the wherever I was trying to get enrolled in class and. The lady says, Mr. Newberg, we got to meet. I'm like, oh, okay, maybe they got some financial aid for me here or something. She said, it appears as though we're more interested in your higher education than you are. Mm. So until you get serious, we don't think we're going to allow you to continue here. So I took a year off. Uh, My mom moved to Carson City, Nevada at the time, so I went up to visit her. And I looked around. I'm like, wow, this is pretty good. This is all right. And I took a job at a sawmill there. And... It only takes about six months on the green chain, stacking green lumber before you decide, you know, Randy, you graduated towards the top of your class and you're here stacking lumber on the green chain. You might want to think about this college option because you were too poor of a logger that your dad wouldn't let you take over the logging business. You flunked out of your first college or second college. You better change majors and go get on with life so i had to change majors that's how i became an accountant so what what did you major in when you were at arizona state maybe i missed that i i can't i don't think quail hunting quail hunting gotcha (laughs) yeah (laughs) Yeah. and very successful (laughs) oh yeah if there would have been a major in quail and dove hunting i would have been i would have have every award and cord around (laughs) me i had graduated in a year and a half Uh, so that's how i ended up in nevada where i got exposed to chucker Mm. Uh, all kinds of different. They have a lot of quail in, in Nevada. Um, and I was there, uh, let's see, a few years going to college, stayed there three years after college, and then I moved to Montana where. Because you I met your now. wife I in met, Nevada, right? Yeah, met my wife in Nevada. And uh, on our honeymoon, uh, she said she wanted to go fishing. Well, so obviously, you know, she'd been trained into the. I, She'd never, she'd fished one time before she met me. Hmm. Well, you can't come from northern Minnesota without, that's one of the first criteria, one of the first boxes you check when looking for a spouse, right? Like to fish. <laughs> right. So she loved to fish. For our honeymoon, I, in the back of my head, I'm, I told all my high school buddies, I'm moving to Montana someday, and they're all like, well, I'm going to Chicago, or I'm going to Minneapolis. I'm going to Montana. Well, I'm still not there yet, but I thought, well. I wonder if I could talk her into a honeymoon to Bozeman, Montana. The fishing's really good there usually. So we go there for two weeks. The fishing is fantastic. I mean, off the charts. It's, it is as if someone painted a beautiful canvas and made the fish just jump onto shore for us to eat. And I still remember we're driving home. We're barely out of Bozeman. And she turns to me and says, I'm moving here. You coming with? <laughs> and... 
behind the scenes, I'm fist pumping, doing high fives, but wanting to make sure I keep my man card in place. I say, well, gee, honey, we just got married, and you're already giving me the ultimatum. What's the deal here? When really, it was the best sale I ever made. (laughs) And uh, so uh, we took the pay cuts required to move there, and we've been there since 1991. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. And now we get to hunt grouse partridge yeah. i can't believe i call them grouse it's in montana they call them grouse my dad i'm sure rolls in his grave every time i say that but tons of pheasants yeah uh, those of you who chase pheasants and sharp tail and sage grouse you know eastern and huns. central montana yeah huns it's it is my my montana friends are gonna say shut up newberg we got enough people here but uh, yeah it's the fashionable place fashionable place to move right now yeah it is and i'm I tried to close the gate behind me when I got there in 1991, but I guess I'm as much of that <laughs> problem as anybody. Well, if else, you can't so. knock the smile off your face with a hammer, then yeah, I'm I as a just yeah for for a person who loves hunt hunting fishing, a lifestyle of conservation, uh, just a culture that believes in wild places and wild things. Montana has it in spades, mm. and I'm I. They're, they're, but when I go back home, my wife, you know, when I, I say I go back home, I'm talking Big Falls, Minnesota. Uh, my wife says, you know, we'll never get it out of you, will we? Mm. And, Where's your wife native to? Uh, right here in Las Vegas. Oh, she is. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I you didn't gotta think be any careful. When, was... when you say you marry a Vegas girl, yeah. that has a connotation that at the <laughs> first impression, people are like, whoa, Randy. And then. I was like, no, she went to high school here. Huh. She she never worked as a quote unquote Vegas girl. So, huh. so I'm not going anywhere near that. Yeah, yeah don't that, touch that, that one. Yeah, Howard. that's that's so easy. Yeah, I'm just gonna let that. I go. just served up a home run pitch for anyone who <laughs> wanted. We're gonna cut the. We're gonna close off the accounting string. How long were you a uh, practicing accountant, or do you still to this I day? I still do a little bit of it. I'm really bad at it. My huh. wife is looking for a new accountant. If any <laughs> listeners know of a good accountant, she would like one. Uh, yeah, I started working for a CPA firm uh, in 1989, and I'm still kind of doing it. Mm. I, I started uh, a firm in Montana in 1996. Uh, so I, me and another guy, we were the founding partners, and the firm is still there, and it's it's doing big things since they got me out of their mm. way. You know, you were, uh, Howard, you were a, a public accountant for uh, 10 years? Yeah, seven, eight years. Okay. Yeah. So... When did you guys uh, tap into this public speaking component? Or were you always anomalies in in high school and college, and you were you you felt comfortable in front of a crowd? Um, I don't think I was comfortable in front of a clou- crowd. Um, I th- so I left. So when I was in public accounting, that's where I met Jeff Finden, volunteered to help them set up some accounting systems. Blah, blah, blah. Jeff Finden was one of the founders of Pheasants Forever. Right, and the, uh, the first CEO. Yep. Um, so it was like year two in the organization. There was about 12 chapters. Uh, so I, I just agreed to, you know, help them set up an accounting system to capture the chapter information. And then later I did a lot of pro bono work, started, took over the audit for them. But um, when I came on as the director of finance in July of 87 – um, you know, we had we had twelve staff of twelve people, and there was at that point even there was a hundred and probably fifty chapters, something like that. And somebody had to go to the events. Yeah. And so I 
pitched in. I did as many banquets as our field reps did, you know, driving around Minnesota, Wisconsin, Dakotas. And when you got there, you had to give your three minutes, uh-huh. thank the volunteers, thank the members for coming. And so I kind of learned, I think, uh, I think it was birth by fire. Yep. Uh, I, I also learned how, uh, you know, part of me wants to say how unimportant a speaker can be at a banquet mm-hmm. because people are having fun. Yeah. And they're partying. This is the biggest event in their county for the season. And when you're up there, even if it's just for three minutes, the attention span is about 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you get a realization of really who you are, <laughs> right, in this event this evening. Yeah. And I'm there. I realize I'm here to thank those five key volunteers, right, that president, the chapter banquet chair, you know, thank those guys for all the work they've done to bring this together. Get on, get off. And then there was some other people that I had watched, uh, some of the MCs that they would bring in. And watching them, how they controlled a crowd, uh, good and bad. Right. I, I, I learned from that, absolutely. Took some uh, some lessons from them just by observing. And so I think it just evolved, and then it became more and more. Yeah, when you became president, then the obligations to, to Yeah, speak. then that changed. I mean, yeah. the dynamic also, you know, again, coming from a, a finance background and in within Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, I was the director of finance, then chief financial officer, senior VP. Uh, but when I became CEO, all of a sudden I'm in D.C. quarterly, uh, I'm at the national wildlife conferences. Now I'm mixing with wildlife professionals, and that dynam- dynamic changes again. Mm-hmm. So now I do have to be the face of the organization, um, more thoughtful about what I say, how I say it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right, and right. Dave Nobson, our VP of Governmental Affairs, my first trip out to DC, or one of the first trips, you know, pats me on the back after two solid days of hitting the hill, says, you know, we're going to get you home tomorrow. <laughs> you know, you did great, but we're going to get you home tomorrow. And by the way, we're not going to use the term chicken shit anymore. <laughs> and I said, the senator agreed. <laughs> he said, yeah, I understand. So let's get you home. <laughs> so, I mean, you, there's learning curve mm-hmm. along the way. And there's a comfort level. Um, I think kind of bottom line for me was where, you know, I spent a lot of time in front of the volunteers at our state meetings, and it's humbling, mm-hmm. right? I, I mean, I'm paid to be here, and I love what I do, but there's these volunteers out there who give so much time and energy, and it is humbling to be up there, and that changed my kind of view of the crowd, mm. right? This is my opportunity to really thank them, really give them something important. I mean, our team, Bob, you've uh, been there. Uh, to be our keynote Saturday night. This isn't uh, a light discussion that we have about who we would give a microphone to to talk to our people, talk to our champions, our volunteers. Um, and we're thrilled that uh, you're going to be there and be that voice for us. And and I'm proud of your, your Minnesota kid, <laughs> too. Oh, man, I mean, Howard, is... you're, you just put a heavy load in my pack <laughs> there. Man, I feel like I've got to really put my shoulder to the wheel now. But as far as how I got into public speaking, I still remember I was the captain of the football team in high school, and I had to give the homecoming address. Mm. And I thought, you know what, this is the first time I'm going to wet my pants in public. Huh. I'm going to be standing up there, and I'm going to wet my pants. I, I, I could hardly say my name. Hmm. I was that worried about public speaking. 
And the, I don't know why, because I come from a family that if you go to Big Falls, Minnesota, and say, who's the most colorful storytellers that have ever come out of this town, they're going to say the Stickler, which is my mom's side, and the Newbergs, which is my dad's side. <laughs> hey. So you think I would have never had this problem. Well, I knew I had that problem, so I go to college, and I took two years of business and professional speaking. I said, mm. I got to get over this. And so that helped me get over it. And once I got over it, it was like, bah, nobody really is listening. You know, it's just um, tell, tell Big Falls stories. Tell, you know, hunting <laughs> stories. Tell, tell whatever. And uh, so uh, that's that's kind of huh. how I got into so, it. So, all right. So take the next leap. Um, you're practicing accountant mm -hmm. in Bozeman. And you leap forward to today. Yep. And you got podcasts and television shows. And you're one of the most revered, respected voices for public lands in America. You've been on the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation National Board of Directors. Yep. Close the gap. How did you get to, to be one of the most respected voices for public lands? Oh, uh, boy, this is where I might get you guys in trouble. But I'll try to abbreviate the story. Uh, 2000. Four, December 2004 I'm having all this pain in my side but it's year-end planning season I can't I can't leave the CPA firm I'm I got work to do and for about three weeks this pain is getting worse and worse and worse and worse and finally I end up in the ER hmm. I've got this massive blood clot in my liver hmm. they ship me to Seattle at the university and they're like you know here's what you got but we can't fix it we're shipping you to the Mayo Clinic and uh, I still remember telling my wife, well, they're shipping me back to Rochester. At least if I tip over, you only got to drive me about 300 miles to bury me, uh, meaning going back up north. And she didn't see the humor in that. But <laughs> anyhow, they're like, yeah, you gotta, you're got a sick guy. You, you got some issues here, pal. Mm. Uh, so at that point, I was faced with the Mayo Clinic telling me this accounting and the stress and the, you know, just all it, or the, the work hours, everything else is probably going to kill you. <laughs> and I, I deny, I, they didn't know. They're the Mayo Clinic. They don't know what the hell they're talking about. So I kept trying to do it for the next three years and I'd end up in the emergency room all the time, ended up back at the Mayo quite a bit. So I was, I wasn't a model patient, let's put it that huh. way. Uh, so they pretty much gave me the, you're either going to get out of the accounting profession or we're going to quit treating you because you're not doing what we're telling you. So the stress is causing all this. Well, uh, the, when I had that big blood clot, it ruined all the plumbing in my liver. So I get about 20% of the blood flow to my liver that the average human gets. Hmm. So the rest of my blood just circulates around in my body full of toxins and everything else. And so it doesn't take much for me to go to the dark side as it relates to toxins so if you see some episodes of our stuff and i'm looking a little pale and mm -hmm. uh, just ready to tip over it's because i've got serious toxin load so anyhow mm. i'm back home uh in 2005 mayo sends me home and says you're, you're gonna lay on the couch for the next three months i'm like oh my gosh you're going to be treating me for psychiatric issues if I got to lay on the couch for three months. So they give me all this medication. My son's 15 at the time, and he's the, the teacher's assistant at the high school uh, video class. And we're playing way too much cribbage. And 
I had been watching outdoor TV, which is not medicinal, not therapeutic in even the slightest way. And I tell my son one day laying there, I'm like, that outdoor TV, that, that is so, 90% of that is a bunch of crap. I can't believe that's even on TV. And he turns to me and says, well, we can do better than that, Dad. Hmm. I'm like, yeah, right. That's why I'm on the couch and they're on TV. Well, in somewhere in my over-medicated state, he convinces my wife to order more video production equipment than you would need for, well, it, it was just a lot. And I come downstairs one day, I ask my wife, I'm like, what is all this stuff? Well, Matthew said you guys are getting into the DVD business. You're going to produce <laughs> public land hunting DVDs. And huh. he said you needed this. If I would have ordered all that stuff, I'd have been divorced. She wouldn't have cared about my state of physical condition. She would have had my stuff packed and out on the sidewalk. But her son, well, it's just, you know, it's another project. And you're you're doing a lot of hunting yeah. leading up to this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Me me and my wife and my son, we that was our thing. We hunted and fished. I, I had tax season fishing season and hunting season huh. at our house okay. so uh anyhow we do this and my son over the few years of us filming each other and friends and all, a bunch of people he puts together what's called the sizzle reel and we come here to the shot show in 2007 january 2007 and i get laughed out of the building public land oh good luck with that son <laughs> self-guided oh they kind of slap their knee so i go home I told my son, he's like, oh, well, we got to do better. So I come back January 2008, same response. I go home, sell all my gear. I'm like, I'm done with this. What a stupid idea this was. Hmm. I'm just going to go fishing and go hunting. Heck with it. Well, in, the, in September of 2008, a friend of mine, Mark Pierce, uh, some of you may know Mark Pierce. He used to host the Ducks Unlimited TV show, and he starts this production company, unknown to me. He lives just down the road from me. I duck on on his place and trap his muskrats for him. And he calls me. He says, hey, I hear you got a bunch of video footage. I'm like, yeah, why do you care? Well, I'm starting a TV production company. And right now I got this Benelli show. I got a bunch of crazy long-bearded duck hunters from Louisiana, which turned out to be the duck manager. Mm -hmm. And I need one more show. And I hear, I've bought, our buddy Bob told me about this footage. So he comes by my office. He gets the DVD, this is a reel my son had put together, and he calls me. He says, this is the silver bullet people have been looking for. Hmm. And if anyone can do it, I know it's you. Oh, Mark, come on. Just leave me alone, man. I want to stay your friend. So we go through this whole, no, no, no. He finally talks me into coming out to his house. I go out to his place, and he's got his production crew there. And the trap is set. I mean, I walked right into it, and Mark sets the trap. And I said, no, I ain't doing it, Mark. He's like, I'll make you a deal. I'll send a crew with you for the first three hunts. We'll turn them around real quick. You look at it, and if you don't like it, you don't owe me a dime. Hmm. If you like it, you sign a contract for us to produce a TV show for you. And I've already been lining up sponsors for you. <laughs> oh, okay. Hmm. That's a heck of a deal. So that's how wow. I got into it. And what convinced you when you saw the footage? Uh, they just did a really high-quality job, and they let me talk a lot about conservation, which yeah. that was one of the things I would chap my hide. And uh, I later came to find out that it wasn't necessarily the people producing the show that they didn't want to talk about conservation or food. Mm -hmm. It was just the network guidelines where you're not going to show anyone gutting an animal. 
That's why I'm no longer on the network. When I got so tired of the continual back and forth about, to me, hunting's always been about food. Mm-hmm. It, it's been about conservation. It's been, been about things that are not shown that often. So if you watch my stuff now on Amazon Prime, anytime we harvest an animal, you see us, it might be a really quick time lapse of us processing it and converting it to food. But I got tired, uh, and this is, maybe I'm wrong in this, but I was of the belief that the reason the so many people think that we don't, that food's not part of the equation, that conservation's not part of the equation, is because the, the, the main platform we use to distribute hunting messaging doesn't allow us to, to show food yeah. and how the food is made. Well, what do you think people are going to have for an end vision or... Or a new person who sees that. Or if we never talk about the great work that conservation people are doing, talk about volunteers, talk about all this. If we're, if we're crammed into 22 minutes and it's just got to be shoot them up, bang, bang, shoot them up, bang, bang. And no discussion about the real core values of why we hunt. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to have the outcome you'd expect. So that's, that. it was those kind of things that brought me to TV then you come to TV and you see, wow, this is done way different than I understood. Mm-hmm. Market Group did a great job of it, and and they let me uh, do some of that, and that's part of what convinced me. But once you jump into it, you've got these sideboards that, that networks put on you, uh, and that's been going back since networks came. And I get it. You know, their carrier agreements with, you know, DirecTV, Dish, Cox, Spectrum, right. all that. The, those groups say, hey, we don't want anything that's going to cause the phone to ring down there mm-hmm. with complaints. Well, that's that's not necessarily the whole story of hunting, you know. To sanitize hunting to nothing more than the kill is not my idea of right. hunting. Right. So that's, that's it, how the whole cycle went from being on TV, learning a lot, and then now being on Amazon Prime, YouTube, podcasts, all the other digital stuff. It, and you did kind of set the stage for the public lands discussion from a tone. I mean, I can't remember of a show. I can't remember a show that focused exclusively on do-it-yourself public lands before yours. Was there? No, there wasn't. And that was my whole business model. Howard will laugh at this. When I came here the first time to the SHOT Show, I had a business plan that killed at least 20 cords of trees. <laughs> no, you made partridge habitat. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> we disrupted the habitat for the quality of, of yeah. the wildlife. But <laughs> And uh, it was all about the demographics of the hunting world. Mm-hmm. That uh, some It was pushing close to 90% of hunters went without guides, regardless of whether it was birds, whether it was big game, small game. Well, there were no TV shows so of the 400 TV shows, none were self-guided. So my little P accountant brain said, well, right there, just demographically, mm-hmm. maybe I could succeed. Yeah. And then in the West, because we, we did mostly and still do mostly Western big game hunting, in the West, 70% of the hunters primarily, not exclusively, but primarily hunt on public lands, mm-hmm. whether it's state wildlife areas, National Forest Service, BLM. Well, right there, it's like, well, no one's doing that either. So I looked at these two unserved demographics and said, well, maybe I'm going to be so weird and so uh, so much of a loner that I'll completely fail. Or maybe I'll succeed in spite of my ugly face and, my, <laughs> and everything else. And he does so, have that face for radio. <laughs> I do. Well, as Howard, Howard talked about, we have 
big debates every year of who's going to be the keynote uh-huh. at, at Pheasant Fest for the big Saturday night banquet. And, you know, what we came back to with you is, you know, there's no air of diva. Right, I mean, you, you, <laughs> if you go to Big Falls, they'll say, "Well, maybe a Big Falls." No, but, see that trailer house down there that is falling apart. That's where he used to live. Right. So I, I the, and, and <laughs> you know, so and, and your message does resonate with all of our volunteers, all of our members. It, it is the that ninety percent DIY to the masses, yeah. and you're extremely approachable. At least you come off as extremely approachable, right? Yeah, that's the pleasure of what I get to do is meet all these really interesting people. Yeah, and and you talk public lands, you talk conservation, and so we're very excited. We're blue collar. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and a lot of people ask me, where does this missionary zeal for public lands come from? Mm -hmm. And it's a story that is unique to America because we have this public lands to hunt in America, but it's not unique in America in that the story I'm about to tell happens thousands of times in America. I'm 11 years old in Big Falls, Minnesota. Everybody I knew was a hunter. Every mentor I had, every adult I looked up to, my dad, my uncles, my grandparents, the guy across the street, Paul Reese, my school teacher, Owen Gordon, who taught my hunter ed class, they were all hunters. Mm -hmm. My dream of what I want, I want to be a hunter. I'm 11 years old and my parents get divorced and my dad takes about eight, nine months and moves out to Montana and going to work in the oil fields. And so I'm starting to have this fear that my dream of being a hunter, right when I'm getting ready for hunter education, Mm. it's not going to happen. So go through hunter ed and my dad would come back for deer hunting season and stuff. But, and he moved over to the iron range for a little while. It, It was like this two or three year period. He was in and out, and he he loved to hunt, and he, he wanted to make sure I got to hunt. So I'm not trying to say he just mm-hmm. abandoned me or anything. But fortunately for me, when I got the feeling that I wanted to hunt, and my dad might be over working on the Iron Ranger, might be working somewhere else, I could get off the school bus, could walk down the road to our little trailer house we had down there. I could grab my 20 gauge that I'd bought with muskrat pelts <laughs> and the ammunition that I'd converted from probably weasel pelts or who knows what, picking boughs or blueberries. And I could walk down what we called the Indian Trail and within less than a mile, I am on Pine Island State Forest. Mm. And once I got on Pine Island State Forest, I thought I was Daniel Boone, man. Mm-hmm. I... So if it was not for that public land, if it costs a dollar a day for me to go hunting as a 12, 13-year-old, I wouldn't be sitting here. I wouldn't have been a hunter. My mom was working in a diner as a waitress. She couldn't, if I would have told her, hey, mom, I need a dollar to go deer hunting today or bird hunting, it have broke her heart. She mm. went around the corner and cried because she couldn't afford it a dollar to, for me to go hunting. And I never realized how lucky I was to grow up with those public lands right out my back door until I moved to Montana. And Montana is one-third public and two-thirds private. And we have amazing private land stewards in Montana, just amazing private land people. But there were still plenty of places that I wanted to go that had no trespassing Mm -hmm. signs. And so I started thinking about, well, what if I was a kid who had to walk somewhere to go hunting and there's all these no trespassing signs well i started it just started building in me the understanding of how critical 
public land was in my upbringing to the point of mm. getting to be a hunter. And so since that point of kind of that realization, I'd say that realization came to me in 92, 93, something like that. Mm. I just, I had a big mouth and I would go to, <laughs> go to public hearings, go to wildlife things, go to yeah, every organization and engage and get myself involved. And that's became my, my So mantra. that's got to connect to, if you look, if folks look at your website, mm -hmm. it's your social media. It says Randy Newberg, comma, Hunter. Hunter. I, I don't know of anybody else that, you know, um, creates that recognition of themselves on yeah. in the world but you're you're the one person that identifies themselves as a hunter i that's what i am yeah. i mean i'm sure howard you can relate to this in northern minnesota and, and i I, we, I use that because that's our common place mm -hmm. but you can go to a lot of places in america where hunting is still part of the culture yeah and I'm never going to walk away from my identity that I am a hunter. Mm -hmm. It's what I've been. It's the community I came from when my ancestors came from Finland and Sweden in 1910, 1915. They were all hunters. Every place I grew up, people, we hunted, we fished, we trapped, we, you know, mm -hmm. harvested firewood and gardens. And I'm not going to back away from that today. I'm proud as hell of that. doesn't mean I got to flaunt. You know, right, hunting is sure. some sort of gory shoot 'em up kind of thing, but I I'm proud of that, mm -hmm. and so that's what my business card says. It doesn't say Randy Newberg, comma CPA. It says Randy <laughs> Newberg Hunter. And if you don't like it, well, right away you know who I am. I, I I'm not. Uh, you know, you're not going to find out after the fact that I hunt. Yeah. You're going to find out right up front. So. Um, it occurred to me you were talking about your son who kind of really pushed the envelope on getting you into the outdoor. Is he still with you today in terms of part of the production team? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah I was just on the phone with him before the, the two of you showed up. He uh, He's like his mom. He's smart. I, yeah, I. So we told him, because we only had him, and there's some comedian. Matt, right? Matthew, you said yeah. Matt. Yeah, there's a comedian that says if you only have one child, you're really not a parent. Hmm. And, uh, cause you know, they're not fighting with it. So I'm really not a parent. So I, I'm probably not one to give parental advice. Uh, but we told him, you know, you, you go off, go to college, wherever you want. We'll pay for it. Blah, blah, blah. Well, I thought he's going to end up at the community colleges like I did in which I had down how they let me into the university of Minnesota. I'm still not sure they must, they must've had to meet the quota of Finlanders for that <laughs> semester. So, but anyhow, he went off and did his thing and, uh, he's been really successful at what he does, but he still stays very involved. He, he grew up hunting and fishing. Huh. He didn't play little league. We walleye fished. Is that right? Oh, that kid, he spent more days in a boat in the summer. By the time he was 10, we were fishing walleye tournaments together, and he was launching the boat and loading the boat, and you'd see these old guys looking at him. That kid had loaded more boats than they had probably. Huh. And to this day, man, it's fun going walleye fishing with him because when he's there, I just get to kick back, let him run the boat. <laughs> let do the professionals do it. Yeah. And, uh, but this will get a little bit to bird hunting. Uh He's more of a bird hunter than he is a big game hunter. And I think the reason being, and I think most of your listeners can relate to this because we all love our dogs. When he was growing up, we had two labs, hmm. uh, Copper and Merle. And Copper was his 
birthday present when he was four. And he was a little bit too young to be involved in the training. Well, then when he was 12, we got Merle. Got talked into him, talked into him at a Ducks Unlimited banquet, and we bought him. And Matthew was very involved in that training. Hmm. And so he really took to waterfowl hunting, right. upland bird hunting, anything where the dogs were involved. And I think part of it was because he he lived with those dogs. Yeah. They were his pets. They were his buddies. He didn't he didn't have a brother or sister. He had these dogs running around. And so if you I, I tell people if you told Matthew you have the choice, Matthew. You can shoot a Boone and Crockett bull elk in the Walmart parking lot and skid him into the truck. Or you can hike over the Bridger Mountains to get one shot with your shotgun. He'd have his 12-gauge, and he'd be heading <laughs> over the Bridger Mountains. Just... Well, you, you went right where I was thinking about because the, the questions, the only questions I've had people ask, well, why are you bringing Randy to Pheasant mm-hmm. Fest? Because your your name is synonymous with public land elk mm-hmm. hunting, right? I mean, yeah. elk is elk and Randy Newberg are like peanut butter and jelly. Mm-hmm. But you grew up grouse hunting. You live in Montana, pheasant hunting. You just got back from a quail hunt in Arizona. Oh, yeah. Bird hunting yeah. is a pretty big part of your life yeah. too. We we don't film a lot of bird hunting for a couple of reasons. One, it's hard <laughs> to film it, and two, there's sometimes I just don't want my hunting disrupted by cameras yeah so when matthew comes home for christmas or thanksgiving whenever he comes home we're bird hunting we whether it's pheasants whether it's waterfowl whatever uh if you've ever seen me when there are birds around i'm i'm right there with one of those hotly wired dogs man i am my tail is twitching and i'm like let's go let's go (laughs) let's go so and i eat them i'm unapologetic what's your favorite Oh boy, that's a that's a good question. Quail certainly are mm. are really good. Huns are really good. Rough grouse, partridge are really good. <laughs> Pheasants are are really good. I'm I'm probably lean more towards the whiter meat ones than mm. I do like a sage grouse or a sharp tail. Sure, but I'm equal opportunity. Uh, I've I'll I'll eat any of them. Uh, I, so, can you tell the difference between the like the desert quail, gambles, merns, scaly? They, I, I just got done eating all three. Yeah. And uh, have you had all three? And, I don't think I've had all three. I, yeah. And uh, you know, there. You, I think if you put all three, put a bob white, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between all four of them. Interesting. Which I've, is I've, odd because they're eating different things. Yes. Yeah. I've but, never ate bob white, but if there's a difference between scale. Uh, Merns and and gambles. I I can't tell the difference. Yeah, but. I don't think there is, but, but. maybe we'll have to ha- ask Hank Shaw that. He there probably we can. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Hank but. was down with us. Oh yeah, he, yeah. Okay. He was so bummed that this, this is the first year in years he can't make pheasant fest, and uh, he was down there with us. He cooked a quail dinner for us one night. Him and John O'Dell is just unbelievably. So cool. how'd they do it? Um, that one. How did they do that one? I, I can't even explain what it is. It was it, I I mean, see in northern Minnesota. It would have cream of mushrooms. Yeah. <laughs> well, I but, thought but, like with Hank on on the road, he would have like chopped the cactus down, taken like the seeds out of the inside. Yeah, he like pressed some cactus juice into the marinade. He brought a whole bunch of ingredients. I don't even know what they were. Yeah. And then he was down in the. Uh, he came from South Texas. There's some choo choo. 
some bird down there. Chakalaka. Chakalaka. There you go. He brought three of those, and he made this rice dish with all these greens he had, and he put chakalaka in it. Oh, my gosh. I thought there was going to be a fist fight over who was going to get to lick the pan when nice. they were all done. Uh, but as far as eating them, boy, I don't know. I The pheasants don't last very long at my house. My oh. wife, she if you ask my wife, she'd say pheasant or rough grouse. Hmm. Um, and she has, when we fish, she has a motto. If you hook them, you cook them. Hmm. And the same applies to bird hunting. She's If we let one get away... There's a serious tongue lashing about to be directed towards <laughs> me. She, this is serious stuff for her, yeah. which I love. I mean, and, and she hunts with you. Yeah, she doesn't that much anymore, but she used to. I mean, when it was bird hunting, yeah. she was all in. Hmm. And so that's what drew me to bird hunting a lot was it was something my wife enjoyed more than hiking 10 miles yeah. with heavy boots and packs and cold weather to chase an elk that we, we never shot. I mean, what kind of fun is that? Yeah. But go let the dogs chase some pheasants up and whack a few of those. Yeah, the dogs are the magic, too. Yeah. No, I, that, that's probably the thing I miss about big game hunting, or by doing a lot of big game hunting, is just I, I miss the, the, the work of the dogs. Yeah. I, I really miss that. And, you know, since both those dogs have passed, my wife still has her 17-year-old cockapoo that's hanging around the house. But... Right now, I just, as much travel as I do, it's not fair to a dog. That, I'm there, too. That loves to hunt as much as I do to not get to hunt as much as I do. So until a later point in time when my travel is better, I'm I'm out of the dog. You business. guys both need to curtail the amount of travel then. Yeah. Dogs make life yeah. better. But dogs are kind of like fishing boats, you know. If you have a good friend who has one, you don't <laughs> yeah. really know. That's, you know, that's yeah. the, one of the most common questions mm-hmm. I get is, what's your favorite hunting dog? Yeah, and the generic answer is somebody else's. Yeah. <laughs> I can't, you know, the amount of business travel that I'm on, I can't justify having a, a good hunting dog. Yeah. Uh, and then at the end of the day, I get to hunt with some really incredible and varied. Right. Dogs. Well, and just for perspective, you probably travel one out of three days in a year, right? I mean, you're you're on the road over 100 days. Yeah, about 100, 120 days. Wow. Yeah, that's a lot. I suppose you're on the road quite yeah, a bit. Yeah, well, me and my crew, <clears throat> we were just down coos deer and quail hunting in southern Arizona, and we sat down and did the count: 131 days wow. this wow. year, as how long we'd be, from when our season started to when it ended. Hmm. But, so, no, I, so I want to qualify this that uh, my 120 days was not hunting. <laughs> oh. That's true. All right. <laughs> I, good I good for the presidency of a nonprofit to make that distinction. Yeah. yeah. If, in fact, that's, you know, there's one of the myths is that I get a lot of hunting and I don't. If I'm yeah. three, four times in a year and they're, you know, two, three days events. Now, make no mistake, when I get to go, it's spectacular. But for me, I, you know, one thing you've touched on that's magic for me is when I get a chance to hunt with my two boys. Yeah. And there we typically go where someone doesn't know us or know what I do because it is just going to be about us yeah. and not about mm-hmm. what I do for a living or, you know, my passions, right? It's going to be about the boys and myself. Yep. And that's priceless. That's I, magic. I will not let anything interfere with those days with Matthew. Hmm. I just, when he's there and he wants to go hunting, it's, uh, 
I don't care weddings, funerals, divorces, court, jury duty. I'm I'm gone. Don't mm. don't count on me being there because so as we get older, we all know those people who said, "Well, we'll go do that someday." Yeah. Yeah, we'll go do that next year. And guess what? Either their health is gone or they are gone yes. and they don't get to do it and I'm uh, I, my goal in life, if anyone does attend my funeral, my grandma Newberg used to say the number of people who attend your funeral is dependent upon the weather that day. Um, but if anyone does attend a funeral for me, I hope they say, I wish I would have hunted as much as he did. Hmm. That That's my goal in life. And my wife says, right now I'm so far out in front, I could slow down at any time. She right. said, you're going to win that race. I'm like, I don't know. People might be catching me. So not to to give away your speech, but I want to mm-hmm. tease it a little bit. Sure. Um, you know, we, we all take for granted, like you say, there's, there's going to be a tomorrow to go hunting. Mm-hmm. We also take for granted that there's going to be public lands for mm-hmm. us to go hunting on. Yeah. And that's a little bit, uh, that's kind of an entryway into what you're going to talk about on Saturday night, February 15th, at the, uh, the largest... Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever Banquet in the country Ooh. in Minneapolis. How many so, people are going to be there? Uh, there's probably going to be in the neighborhood of 1,500 people. Really? Yeah. And we're, we're close to 1,000 seats already that, sold. That means you could fit Big Falls in there over seven times and still not have that <laughs> many people. But... Uh, a little teaser, and there's quite a bit of background about I, uh, Howard and I were talking about this before we put the mics on. Uh, in my CPA life, I've been blessed to work with a lot of ranch and farm clients. Hmm. So I really understand the private land conservation ethic that exists in America and how critical that part is also because so many of our species, oh, I, even big game, spend a good chunk of their time maybe it's winter ground on private land right and if you don't have buy-in from private land stewards you don't have conservation if it, we, we are a society that puts demands on the landscape for food for energy for for all these things mm-hmm. and in the process of doing that we have we disrupt these native landscapes well hunters along with a lot of these private land stewards are interested in finding what, where and how can we take these disrupted landscapes and still do something for conservation. And whether it's the farmer who leaves a little bit left in there who says, you know what, this wetland, I'm, I'm not messing right. with it. It can be a multi CRP. Thing. Yeah, CRP. So in my CPA life, I get to see this connected value of wildlife, of conservation, of public and private land stewards. And so... The, the thing that I always say about conservation, whether it's on public land, private land, or, or whether it's, uh, you know, big game, small game, water, aquatic species, is the greatest conservation accomplishments in our country. And I think our country is the leader in showing how conservation can be done, how it can be funded, the models we use, primary, primarily user-driven models of hunters, anglers, and others. Uh, there's, there's three principles I always say that you have to look at and admire is quality or, or remarkable conservation projects are never easy. They're always difficult. Mm-hmm. They're, they're always uncomfortable. Someone is going to be upset and they're going to let you know about it and it's never convenient. And I'm, I have some examples from Minnesota, uh, some people 
I know from Minnesota who are examples of they didn't wait until they had an opening on their calendar to say, I want to do this. Imagine if the founders of Pheasants Forever decided, you know, we're we're kind of bothered about that, but we're not going to do it until we got a big opening in our calendar. You know, mm-hmm. it's got to be convenient before we decide to do that. Imagine if all your amazing volunteers said, well, that's hard work, and <laughs> I, I, I'm not in. You know, it, right. what would happen to conservation without volunteers? Mm-hmm. And I don't, care what, I don't care what organization you're talking about. And I've chaired for seven years. I chaired the Ducks Unlimited chapter in Bozeman, Montana. I've served on the board of the Elk Foundation for six years. I've emceed, like Howard, events of all way, shapes, and forms. And if you want to get crossways with me, just go and give one of those volunteers a hard time. Because mm-hmm. I'm not going to say, this person is giving their time or their talent or their treasure or, or a combination of right. the three for something that they will never own. That's what's so remarkable about conservation in America. We don't own that wildlife. But look at how much these volunteers give to that cause. You know, you you think, well, yeah, I'll go do that because I own that, that asset or that, that property or whatever it might be. We're talking about thousands and thousands of people saying, I'm going to go and work my tail off. And I might get someone who doesn't like the, you know, how we do it or whatever. And I'm going to find a way to fit it in between the, you know, coaching hockey and and church and whatever, because it's their passion. It's their love. And I look at that and that's one thing that keeps me so optimistic, I guess, about the future of hunting and conservation is we have cores of volunteers, whether it's hunter ed instructors, whether it's pheasants forever volunteers, whether it's the 4-H person who teaches you know, whatever it is mm-hmm. for shooting or archery after the school's programs. It's just so remarkable that we have that. And we have people who don't wait until it's easy. They roll their sleeves up and put their shoulder to the wheel. They don't care that it's uncomfortable. Or they might care, but they persevere, mm-hmm. you know. Their brother picks up the phone and gives them an earful of, well, that's a stupid idea. Why <laughs> are you doing that? And they're like, well, because that's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And they don't let the excuse of I'm busy get in the way. And so that's kind of the, if you had to get the Cliff's Notes version of of what uh, drives me to try, do my little part yeah. about, my, when I say Randy Newberg Hunter, the role of conservation is completely inseparable. It, it cannot be separated from the identity of being a hunter and so that's what people are going to hear hopefully they don't throw rotten eggs at me when <laughs> i'm all done i think we picked the right uh speaker howard. see i told you yeah <laughs> <laughs> well I, played <laughs> i don't know if howard remembers this i think it might have been here at shot show <laughs> i can't quite a few <laughs> years ago he was he and i are buzzing down the hallway going different directions and he he sees me and he stops and he says, "Hey, would you ever be interested in coming back for Pheasant Fest?" Huh. And I th- think my comment was something like, "Ah, oh, if you ever have it back in Minnesota, give me a call." Well, there you go. Here we are. As quick as you guys announce it's going to be in Minnesota, one of your guys are calling me. Hey, Randy, Howard wants me to pass along a message to you. 
you promised him that if ever Pheasant <laughs> Fest was back in Minnesota, it's like, oh, man, I can't back out on the guy now. That's right. So, yeah. And that's <laughs> just. So will you be swinging by Big Falls on your trip through Minnesota? You know, uh, I try to avoid Kuchichin County in the winter. <laughs> the warrant's still out. Yeah. I will be back there in July. Our family st- uh, has a, a cabin uh, north of Grand Rapids near a little town called Marcel. Mm. Uh, and we still, my brother and sister and I, we still own the acreage there down below the falls in the big mm-hmm. town of Big Falls. My brother lives in Deer River. My mom lives in Duluth. Uh, I've got family, aunts, uncles, cousins scattered throughout northern minnesota and in the twin cities area and when i give you the list of people who are asking hey can i come and listen to you talk that night you might have to draw the line because (laughs) my mom has eight kids in her family yeah and so i've got cousins and uh, nieces and nephews i i'll make sure they all make a donation well give uh, me that list we're gonna sell out yeah, you, you, you. Yeah, that's the bottom line. Yeah, but you don't serve them any alcohol. <laughs> right. don't, don't let them drink. So before but, uh, we close, you yeah. guys have been going to a lot more shot shows than I have. Um, what, for a listener that's never, you know, been on this show floor, mm-hmm. describe shot show to them. Mm. And it, you know, the second part of that question: What's your goal at shot show? What are you going to do tomorrow? Yeah. Well. Tomorrow, uh, I've spent three years working on a product with uh, one of my sponsors, and tomorrow's the big release. Oh, really? So, yeah. We were we were just here rehearsing for a big presentation. They've invited all the outdoor media, and I, I, my wife, she, you know, said, I've been gone for two weeks. I haven't shaved, and she's she saw a picture of me on one of the social media the other day. She called me. She hates it when I don't shave. You better shave before that thing on Tuesday. <laughs> Do what mom says. Yeah, so... Uh, but at Chacho for me, it, it's massive. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's so easy to get lost. Uh, I can't remember. They talk about if you walked every aisle, how many miles it would be. Mm. It's, I think it's 16 oh, miles. Some, yeah, some crazy number. And then you have, you know, you look around and at least the hunting part of it and shooting part of it, then there's kind of a tactical law enforcement part of it. Uh, I just look around the hunting part of it the AMO manufacturers, the rifle companies, uh, all of those. And I think how remarkable it is that this is the industry that funds so much of the conservation Mm. in the United States. With PR dollars. Yeah. And there will be people out on the sidewalk, out there in front of the Sands Expo Center, a few handful, you know, doing their little protest Mm -hmm. of, you know, the gun industry or these people shoot or hunt or blah, 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 whatever. If they had even the slightest clue of here we are taxing ourselves, putting this money in a pot. Right. That gets reallocated back to the state for wildlife management and conservation, which benefits so many non-game species in addition to game species that we hunt. And anglers do the same thing. And so when I walk around the shot shot show floor to me, I'm just like, wow, this is the sound of conservation. Mm. (laughs) I mean, it's... Yeah, and I, you know what, I I have, uh, I agree. And at the same time, it is such a small piece of the outdoor show. Yeah. Right? I mean, this is, oh, this show has evolved. It's, you know, the tactical side is... Uh, continues to grow and that's fun and interesting mm-hmm. yeah 
Uh, but, you know, let's be clear on the Pittman-Robertson side, it is just guns, bullets, right. bows, and arrows. Yeah. Just those, really those four things. I mean, yes, shotguns and yes, shells, but just those four things. And if you look at the breadth of the show, all the outdoor equipment that you could, you can use in the outdoors that are used specifically right. for hunting doesn't go to PR. Right. It is truly, you know, the guns, the bullets, the yep. bows, and the arrows, period, hmm. that fund along with license sales, 80% of all conservation yep. in America. Yeah. It is startling. Yeah, it is. And, and to me and in all my platforms, uh, one of my first questions for any company that wants to be involved with our platforms is what do you do for conservation? Mm. Because a lot of them aren't required. You know, if you make clothing or coolers or, you know, they, you, the list goes on and on, boots, or you're not required to pay into PR. Correct. Pitt Pittman Robertson. So what are you doing there? And Every one of my partners are all in mm. on conservation, and that's really important to me. Right. I, you know, I think to and not to get old and nostalgic, but I am 55 years old, and I think back to here's Big Falls, Minnesota. We have Owen Gordon uh, had lost most of his hearing in World War II. Owned the little hardware store. He's where you bought your hunting licenses and your, you know, your Chills. rifles and your shotguns and ammo. He taught hunter ed, hmm. and he made sure every kid who wanted to go through hunter ed, he made sure that you got to go. And as he kind of drifted out of it, Paul Reese, the sixth grade teacher, he, he jumped in, and for a couple of years they did it together, and then Paul Reese took over. And I think about those kind of people. That that's th To me, those are the heroes of what we have mm -hmm. of hunting and conservation in America. They're the volunteers of your chapters. They're the people who are out knocking on merchant doors. They're the merchants who are generously supporting what you do, the donors. Uh, it's you, you can't have conservation the way we have it without so many critical little pieces. And I, I almost feel undeserving of having these big mouth platforms that I have because I know so many other people mm. are doing their share, doing more than their share, doing all their heavy lifting, and I don't think you can ever give them too much praise. Uh, well, uh, and I'll I'll take that and say that's why you work, right? That's why your your voice is critically important because the rest of our volunteers they have their role, they understand it, they have their comfort level, and not everyone gets to amplify their voice or has that vehicle to be able to speak for them. Right. This isn't, you know, you aren't that Hollywood face of, nope. right, I'm going to read the script. <laughs> right. You live this, breathe this. You are them. Oh, yeah. And that's projected. Um, and that's the magic. And, you know, we're, we're again, we're so excited to have you uh, be a part of Pheasant Fest. Uh, and, you know, and, and, and I've known you for a long time and uh, you have been a voice, whether it was through Orion Mm -hmm. uh, telling the North American model of hunting. Um, that was, that resonated with me. You know, I think it was probably 20 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> um, absolutely. You know, a story that I, you know, you think, you know, mm -hmm. but then to actually hear the evolution of hunters rights in the United States coming from Europe and uh, as it exists in other parts of the world, um, it's an important story and, um, you can't take it for granted and, you know, thank God you're out there, you know, continuing to beat that drum.
Well, I appreciate you guys having me. I, my wife is she. She knows me so well. Our spouses know us mm-hmm. best, right? She has told me. She said, "I don't know that I've seen you as excited to go and give a presentation as you are for this one." And I told her, I said, "Well, I don't don't necessarily think it's excitement, as it might be nervousness, because I'm always more nervous when people in the crowd can call me out as, hey, that's BS, Newberg. We know you.' So." <laughs> There's going to be a lot of people in Minnesota, <laughs> old high school classmates and friends and associates. It, uh, I, I, I just, it, it is the excitement of, yeah. of the group and what you guys do and, and knowing how much I've benefited from your work. I mean, yeah, again, yeah, you guys probably want to wrap this up, but I do a lot of deer hunting in central Montana. Uh, southeast Montana, northeast Montana, along with bird hunting mm-hmm. and other stuff. And I look at how much my big game hunting has benefited from CRP. Yeah. And I know who's had their shoulder to the wheel on on CRP back in D.C. And you guys are pushing the wagon up the hill in a big way. And people would say, oh, well, why do you, why do you care about pheasants forever? Well, I care a lot about pheasants forever because the work that you guys are doing, whether it's the... Uh, Habitat improvement, voluntary public access, uh, HIP VPA program as part of part of the farm bill. Whether it's CRP, whether you go on and on and on, equip and all these things that help landowners operate in a more efficient manner, better sustainable conservation manner. Whether you're a deer hunter or an elk hunter or a whatever hunter, you you probably may not realize it, but you're benefiting from all of that, and your organization is there doing that really dirty work sometimes of howard you'd mentioned you go to dc and they said oh you can go home now or whatever <laughs> i think you used the words chicken shit okay <laughs> I, I mean that's not fun work but it's necessary work, it and it's thankless work and yeah. i've made my share of trips to dc uh but you guys are doing remarkable work and i'm grateful for that and i'm just pleased as all get out that you would ask me to come and talk at at your event and interact with all your great members and donors and volunteers well well said that's you kind of encapsulated exactly why we're bringing you there because we want our our members to hear hear it from you um you know there it, it is you know just to bring it full circle two accountants Two public speakers, right? And the other thing that, and this is not to blow smoke up either one of your butts, but when I walk out on that show floor with both of you tomorrow, you're both two of the most well-liked and well-respected people in this industry, too. Everybody feels like they can go up to Howard Vincent, Randy Newberg, talk about public lands, talk about CRP, talk about volunteering, and... Howard, you'll be introducing Randy in about a month. Um, so we'll invite listeners to please uh, check out pheasantfest.org. Uh, it's going to happen the 14th, 15th, and 16th at the Minneapolis Convention Center. And if you want to listen to Randy's keynote, you need to buy tickets for Saturday night, National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic National Banquet. Uh, and you can do so at pheasantfest.org. It will be sold out. Oh, yeah. So you better no get oh. in quick. You... 
It will be. It, oh yeah, yeah, it will be. Right. It will yeah. be guaranteed. Oh, it will oh, be. Darn. No, I'm gonna have. <laughs> I'm really getting nervous. Here, and this guys. will be the new record, I believe. We we've got a little way. I think we've been to two thousand people, maybe in Sioux Falls. Didn't we have two thousand no, people? I thought we got fifteen. Uh, well, it's we'll yeah. see if we get there. It's going to be big. Yeah. Where right. where is it? Where's the the uh, Minneapolis Convention Center ballroom? Oh. So you oh. can go from the show floor uh-huh. right across the hallway. Will be the the oh, banquet. Cool. Huh. So. Well, if I was really good, we could fill up U.S. Bank Stadium, but yeah. I'm not that good. <laughs> I was Goal hoping, Vikings. Huh? I was hoping that the Vikings would have pulled off some miracle, and I was going to go up there with my, you know, my gold dreadlocks and my purple jersey <laughs> and my little little Viking hat, and I was going to stand up there and do the skull champ, but I didn't. Now I can't do that. And now we don't <laughs> have to worry about you wearing a cheese head either. Well, no, no, you never got to worry about that, boy. Oh, no. I, not, nothing against the cheese heads. I mean, they got a pretty darn good football team. I hate saying that, but uh, I th- – the Packers lost yesterday. That's it. It's been a pretty good weekend well, already. Well, we will have some Vikings items as part of the auction, so bring oh. your wallet. Okay. Uh, we've got uh, Riley Reef's cleats uh-huh. from uh, My Cleats, My Cause. He he had Pheasants Forever cleats made Cool for uh, the game against the Lions, and he donated them to us, so they'll be on the auction. And, of course, we're going to have some Vikings tickets, so – Mm. Um, there'll be there'll be a little bit of a skull theme. Okay. We're still working on the Packers. Yeah, well, don't, don't worry about that. Can, can the keynote guy bid on the? Absolutely. Oh, okay. I didn't Absolutely. want the audience and your family. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> my my I know what my family do. They'd steal my bid card and they they bid on it with bid my card. And I'd be paying for it. But. Well, I'm excited, gentlemen. Right. Thanks so much. Thanks for all the great work that all of you do in your organization and your members, your employees, your staff. I, Howard was just telling me how many staff. I I knew you had a few hundred, but I didn't know how many. Yeah, we're at 450 they, on uh, the team right now. And yeah, and I think it's 72% of them are biologists yes. or have a biology degree, which is, a, is something that – I think we're all proud of that yeah. scientist, scientist, science, science-based. Easy for me to say. Right. And um, you know they're out there doing the work, working with landowners and state agencies, and getting more grass on the ground for the birds. Yeah. Well, uh, it's it's also those people. It's yeah. your staff that work hard. We all know that. A lot of times, a nonprofit organization is borderline nonprofit for the staff too. <laughs> I mean, they could always make more money probably somewhere else, but their their heart is in what they yeah, do. The passion and, they bring is uh, yeah. is catchy. Yeah, you you can't replace that. No and doubt. They they deserve their their due credit also. So, anyhow, thanks so much, guys. Thank you. Thanks for making time uh, in a busy week. For that makes time to record this with us. Howard? Thanks, Randy. Thanks for thanks for being uh my co-host today. We'll we'll de- dedicate a uh, future episode to your story. Done deal. Thanks, All right. Bob. All right, folks, thanks for listening to this episode of On the Wing Podcast with Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. And always remember to follow the dog. Something good is gonna rise. <laughs>